overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. Hey everyone, we hope you are having a great day so far, no matter what has happened. And we've got an incredible episode with you on a topic we have somehow gone without covering thus far. Nutrition. In this episode, we talked to Dr. Jesse Hoffman, who is a PhD in nutritional sciences and also a registered dietitian. Jesse is all about nutrition and recently received a promotion to an assistant professor role teaching students about nutrition. Not only does she formally teach nutrition, but she offers nutritional services on her website, jessiephd.com, as well as educating her followers on Instagram. We talk about what you need to know regarding nutrition, including general advice, where to look for information, and also some myth busting. This is a great episode, so let's get right into it. We are live with another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Here today with us, we have Dr. Jesse Hoffman, who is a PhD in nutritional sciences and also a registered dietitian. Um, so today we're going to dive into a lot of nutrition and just different topics around that, which we've sorely been needing on this podcast. And finally, we have it. So welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here and excited to talk to you all. Yeah, definitely. So I think the first question is, what is a registered dietitian? So a registered dietitian is a trained nutrition professional. So we have our self-proclaimed nutritional professionals that are all over Instagram. But a registered dietitian is really the true trained nutrition professional. You can think of them as the akin to another medical professional, goes through similar training um, that a nurse would go through, et cetera. So to become a registered dietitian currently, you have to have a bachelor's in a a nutrition um, field and you you have to get what's called your DPD verification statement stating that you've taken all of these uh, certain number of classes that makes you therefore eligible to go up for a dietetic internship, which tends to be about a year of an intensive um, 1,200 to 1,400 hour internship um, where you're working in the clinical setting, in the community setting, and in food service. So those are the three primary areas in which you'll find dietitians. Um, And then you can go and sit for your board exam and become an official registered dietitian. So a dietitian is involved, like I mentioned, in the clinical sphere community and food service. But what we typically think of as dietitian in their predominant roles are in that clinical space, um, working mostly with patient populations in which diet is going to be of a large concern. And so they do with those individuals what we call medical nutrition therapy or MNT. Um, So there are numerous different therapeutic diets that can be Um, that individuals can be put on and advised to do. And dietitians are really the only trained professionals um, to do that. So that's long-winded for to say that dietitians are really the true nutrition professionals. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's it's so unfortunate that so few people understand the amount of training that goes into it. So like I did my bachelor's in nutrition and then I ended up deciding to go to med school before I did ended up finishing getting all the extra classes and internship for the RD. But it's a lot to go through. And it's a lot of training. And I think people just think of it as like, oh, like this is a person who like figures out your macros. And it's like it's so <laughs> beyond that. Yeah, it's and it's way more. I don't think people when they think of the nutrition space, they think of just food just calories, just macros, and, you know, even just micronutrients. But food is such a mental and emotional component in, um, in our lives too. And that through your nutri- nutrition education in dietetic programs, you're really taught to consider an individual as a whole and work with them more holistically to consider the mental health um, in their relationships with food, their food environment, et cetera. It's not just about the like nutrient content of the food itself. It's more so about the person as a whole and how they interact with food and their environments. Definitely. I think that RDs are very underutilized in the hospital um, system or healthcare system in general. I know Jason and I are just medical students right now, but from both of our experiences, I think I can speak for Jason. We've seen like little to no use for registered dietitians. Um, And it seems that a lot of physicians either just like marginalize it completely saying, eh, we'll give them to nutrition at some point or just flat out don't use it, which is not very good. Yeah. Yeah. And that can end up uh, driving some uh, wedges between the clinical team as a whole because a dietitian sees themselves as a nutrition professional and a medical doctor, while you... Medical doctors have such important roles in all other areas of medicine that they can't be expected to be the experts on nutrition. And yet some individuals, because they have such an maybe an interest in nutrition or they think that, you know, the few lectures they got in med school gave them the um, enough authority authority and enough to like uh, diagnose and help manage nutritionally. Um, Mm -hmm. Those things that dietitians kind of get brushed to the side. Um, I have seen and heard from some of my clinical friends that they are beginning to feel more and more valued. Um, and the field as a whole is transitioning to require dietitians to have their masters also by 2024. Um, and the thought there is to give them a little more of a, an authority and say, Hey, this is, this is legit. You know, this is my area. I'm an expert in this. Um, so working as a team is so important. (laughs) It is. And I'm glad you touched on the psychosocial factors that go on with nutrition, because I think, you know, especially relating to, you know, eating disorders or obesity, it's an oft overlooked thing where people just say, you know, like eat less, move more. And you're, you're not taking into account all these factors and obstacles that get in the way of people actually achieving that end goal of, of doing so. But, um, so what specifically got you interested in doing a doctorate in nutrition science? So my pathway to nutrition was a little bit different than most individuals. So I have a bachelor's in biology. Um, I went to a very small, small school, like 1500 students. Um, Biology was like the closest you could get to nutrition in that sense. Um, And I decided about halfway through that I was interested in nutrition. And so I went for my master's um, and I was doing a thesis. So I got involved in research there and my master's was in nutrition at UNC Greensboro. And after about halfway through my master's, I was like, okay, really enjoying research. Not, I don't feel like I'm quite done yet um, with school and I want to learn more. Um, so then I went and did my doctorate at the University of Kentucky um, in nutritional sciences. And kind of in a backwards way after that, during that entire process, took all of the DPD courses 
like on the side with my master's and doctorate program, and then did a specialized internship, dietetic internship for PhDs afterwards. So I did basically master's and PhD before um, I did uh, the dietitian route. Um, and I guess what decided, what made me decide to go into the research realm and start thinking about pursuing a doctorate was, um, I do have some personal experience speaking to the mental health aspect of nutrition. Um, I did, uh, develop an eating, a pretty severe eating disorder in high school. Um, and so I got interested in nutrition for the wrong reasons at the first, at first, um, and had to take a step back from it, which was again, largely why I decided to do biology, um, and take, take my mind off of nutrition for a while. And then as, as I was in a healthier place and realizing just the true power that fueling yourself appropriately had on overall health, um, that's when I really dove into wanting to learn more and really the field of nutrition. So kind of have a personal stakes in it and, um, definitely think the mental health aspect of nutrition is incredibly important. Yeah, hundred percent agreed. And, um, I think both Jason and I have very similar backgrounds and stories of why we're kind of interested in the things that we are. Both of us had a quite tremendous weight loss. Somehow both of us went started at 260 and then around 170 for our weight losses. So there's definitely that, um, personal aspect to it that definitely drives us to it. So yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Um, going off of that, um, nutrition is definitely very important as we all like, that's kind of an obvious statement at this point. And it's a huge part of preventive medicine. So one of the things that we try to ask everyone on the show is that, um, everyone has a unique lens to what medicine, preventive medicine means. So what does that mean to you? Well, when we think of how nutrition um, can function as preventative medicine, I always like to think of food is not something that we necessarily have the option of including in our lives. It's something that we have to include to live. Um, and so if you think about those exposures to foods chronically over time, it's something you're exposing yourself to daily. Um, so we can therefore understand the impact that it can have on our overall health if we consider that we're putting things into our bodies daily, repetitively. Um, and so it's uh, from that in, from that sense, I think um, that is a way in which it's preventative is because you can focus more on um, more nutrient-dense foods, foods that we know that are more beneficial for your health rather than foods that may um, that are associated with development of chronic diseases. Um, and I think it's really the compounding over time. But again, I also like to stress that nutrition is a large component is mental health as well. So we can't get so stuck in the weeds of like you have to eat this perfectly balanced diet um, if it's causing you stress or um, hardship. Yeah, I 100 percent agree. You know, I think it's one of those things that like you said people don't really think of it as like, you know, you're exposing it's like an environmental exposure like anything else. You know, I think, you know, the small things add up over a long period of time. And I 100 percent agree that, you know, we have to take into account those the factors of like, you know, how much is your diet stressing you out? You know, if you're you know, if you're freaking out because you couldn't have your, you know, sixth planned meal of the day you know, that stress over time actually can be, you know, more detrimental than even maybe your, the diet itself. But I think that, um, yeah, it's definitely something that, that people don't really look at it as like a constant exposure to, to some sort of environmental stimulus, which is interesting. I will stress though, that the field, when we think about nutrition research as a whole, the field is so young compared to most of the other sciences. Um, so that's why I think people get really confused 
when they see so many conflicting messages from the research included regarding nutrition. And it's largely just because nutrition is so young, we're evolving every day. We can't expect to have all the answers on the first stu- first time we study something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I also like to stress that too. And I think we tend to get very reductionistic in our in the like science side and research side of nutrition and that we get focused on these individual nutrients and then we lose the forest for the trees. Um, because we don't, we're not considering the person as a whole, but we're also not considering how all of the dietary factors that we're studying interact with each other as well. And so I think that can be incredibly confusing for people, um, and why people turn to more fad diets and things like that, because the nutrition science itself can be very gray and not black and white. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think it's interesting that you bring up the research aspect of this and the fact that a lot of people for some reason think that we know everything about nutrition for some reason. They're like, yeah, just do this. It's the magic pill. That's all you need to do. Whereas even like medicine from Jason Eisbrack on a lot of it, we're still figuring out how a lot of these things work. And especially with something that's so nuanced as nutrition, which you have to account for a variety of different factors. It's amazing that people just say, yep, we know it all. And this is what we do. So, um, definitely a lot more research needed. Yeah. Telltale sign of the Dunning-Kruger effect is if someone claims that they know it all at the start. Exactly. (laughs) One of the biggest frustrations for me, um, again, I just have a bachelor's degree, so nowhere near like any level of expertise, but you know, with discussing things with people, you're looking at nutritional studies, which are mostly observational. Um, so, you know, it's easy to, I guess, forget about confounding factors if you're looking at a single observational study, but oftentimes people, you know, it's viewed in the media or the news or whatever new studies shows insert X is good or bad for you here or there. Right. And like, so how do we, as you know, society, you know, medicine, nutrition, registered dietitians, all of us, how do we come together and start to, I guess, look at this from a more, uh, holistic standpoint and get away from this, like, Hey, this one study shows this. So, you know, eggs are bad now and then eggs are yeah. good and then eggs are bad. I think it's funny how you bring up the media aspect because I, it's really what I call research telephone. So it, that game you, you would play as a kid where one person would whisper something and you'd go down the line. And by the end of the time, it's a completely distorted phrase. And that's largely the way that nutrition and scientific information gets disseminated. You have the primary researchers who convey their findings through a research article. Maybe a university releases a press release in which some of the findings may be a little bit exaggerated on, oversimplified. A media outlet, local media outlet picks it up. Further oversimplification, um, you know, for me, during my master's, I had, there was a media outlet that picked up some mouse research I was doing using grape polyphenols. And it ended up, they labeled it as individuals in the study. And I'm like, well, we don't typically consider mice as individuals. And that's like, you know, a confusing term. Yeah, and so yeah. that can go on, on and on. You can see how we, the media exacerbates and causes um, us to, causes the, public to believe that nutrition is just so black and white, like this one study found this, and therefore it should be included in all of our diets. And the large thing I think people don't understand when they're thinking about nutrition research and with it largely being observational and epidemiological is that humans are messy. We are very, very complicated humans, genetics aside, because that is a whole different topic and how, you know, everything our, re- our reactions to nutrients can vary based on our genetics, but we are very difficult to control. Like you do a dietary recall on someone and 
they most likely not, maybe not most likely, but there's a high chance that they're not going to either not remember everything. They may lie to you based on what you think you want to hear. And so the, the research may be biased in that way. And so that I think is confusing for a lot of people in a large, um, source of error error in the like research field with humans and nutrition. Um, the research in which we're able to control things very tightly are in cell culture and animal models, which that research doesn't always translate to humans. Um, so I think the issue really comes down to just humans being incredibly difficult to study um, because of our lifestyle factors, our genetics, um, and inability to be controlled in a sense. Mm -hmm. Do you think that we'll be able to have more definitive uh, nutritional research out there in the future? Are we heading that way? I would hope so with technology as is expanding. Um, I'm sure at some point, this is like me, like fantasizing about research, but I'm sure at some point there will be some tracker that can track every single thing you put in your body without you having to log it yourself. And, you know, then we could have more reputable nutrition data um, and that an individual is not doing a dietary recall because really the most controlled nutrition data that we can do on a, on a human is using what we call metabolic chamber, which is going to measure their metabolism in this tiny confined, like little hotel room space in which they're provided their meals that they eat. They stay in there, they do their activities in there. They don't do anything else. That is the most possible control we get for a human. Um, and that's incredibly expensive and no, not many humans are going to sign up to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I'm hopeful that technology will will become better over time, but, um, it's definitely going to take some time to get there. I think. Yeah. In the meanwhile, um, you mentioned that we have like these headlines that kind of sensationalize research and completely distort it. I don't know how they end up with it. So distorted, <laughs> but I was reading a book called, um, calling bullshit, which is a fantastic book. And it talks about like how, when we see these headlines that people aren't able to understand, like that this is actually bullshit. It's not a real headline. This is not like they don't click the study. So how do we kind of bridge that gap between the layperson who's kind of just looking to these headlines for the recommendations and what the research is saying? Because obviously the research have such like a nuanced like uh, discussion of it in their papers that have like pages on pages and pages of what actually happened. And then we have a headline just saying eggs are good. Yeah. So how, how do we bridge that gap? I think that's largely on us as researchers that we need to be trained more, number one, and do a better job in public communication. Um, I, I always go back to this like statement and I've told this to numerous different people most of our research is funded. A lot of our research is funded by taxpayer money and government money to do that type of research. We therefore have an obligation to be able to communicate our research to those who helped fund it. Um, so I think in like doctoral programs and master's programs and undergrad programs, we need to be teaching about not only how to analyze scientific research articles, not only how to design and conduct appropriate studies, but how do you communicate that at the public level? How do you translate what you're finding to the public? Um, and that's largely why I took to like social media and started doing a bunch of mm -hmm. uh, like social media posts and busting myths and things like that, because there's not that many people that are doing it in this space. Um, we're seeing it explode now and become more popular, which is super exciting, but it, there, there weren't that many people doing it. And it was a large gap in a frustration for people who read headlines, but then also a frustration for us. And like, we're doing this research. Why aren't you understanding? Or like, why are you believing that? It's because they've not been equipped with the same privileges that we have to go through these programs and be trained specifically in it. And, and we're not communicating with them. We're just expecting them to figure it out. 
Um, so that's largely where my passion lies for scientific communication. That's awesome. And I think, you know, you highlighted the big problem. I think another thing that, you know, we're facing is, you know, for every one of you or small, you know, small groups of us that are trying to do our best to, you know, advocate for the right things and put the right information out there. There's, you know, all it takes is, you know, one person who's has a PhD or an MD or DO or whatever goes on the Rogan podcast and shares their, you know, (laughs) their own non-evident recent examples. And then, you know, 40 million people now think this one, you know, COVID can be beat by vitamin vitamin D supplementation. And then how do you, we're just facing that again. So it's like, you know, like how, like, I think we're still in the, in the midst of trying to figure out how to combat popular platforms or people who have huge platforms that are just promoting nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. And I was saying how I don't really know the answer to how we can combat that aside from we amass enough individuals in which our voices become louder. And I do wholeheartedly feel like that's happening to an extent. Um, but I do recognize that some of these people on social media have millions of followers and it's going to be hard to, um, combat that. But if you, if you're not trying, you're just giving up and losing. So uh, it's worth a shot in my opinion. For sure. And I think that there are a lot of efforts ongoing by specific individuals. Like for example, Lane Norton today just dropped a gigantic like article on this specific position that we were talking about that I'm pretty sure you were mentioning um, <laughs> that was spreading terrible information. Yeah. So there is definitely efforts out there to do that. I think it's just, we just need a lot more of that. And that's why we kind of at this podcast are highlighting efforts of people like yourself who are doing that and who are taking all this evidence-based information to try to help people and put it out there instead of just people who might just be trying to communicate and leverage their degree or their expertise for a paycheck. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think we've come, we've actually gone so far and towards like accepting everyone's opinions that we've gone away from expertise. And there's actually a book called, I think it's literally called the death of expertise, but it basically highlights the fact that, you know, everyone has opinions, but not all opinions are equal. And it's like, we're at this space now where everyone who has an opinion also now has a platform to share it. And depending on, you know, a number of different factors, if they're a celebrity, you know, if they're selling nutrition things or, you know, supplements and they're also, you know, shredded or ripped or whatever, you know, they have a million followers for that reason. You know, it's so easy to disseminate bad information and people just, you know, well, you know, they'll just defend themselves saying, well, my opinion is different than yours, but there are things that are objectively right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And we are in that battle of like, you know, well, you know, it's just someone's opinion, but no, it's like, it's wrong and it's hurting a lot of people. So we're like still stuck in this weird limbo. I don't know if you're aware, but we also have a lot of content going alongside each episode over on our Instagram page. So if you aren't already following us there, make sure to go do so at Prevent Podcast. We have a lot of content relating to each episode, including waveforms, different quotes that you can share with your friends and help us spread the message of preventive medicine. And with that, let's get back to the show. Yeah, because to add another layer of confusion and uh, issue to that. We do in the like dietetic space, and I'm sure you, I mean, you have it in the medical sp- like space as well, is we do have a degree of clinical judgment in that uh, we have to decide, you know, the evidence for this might not be, might not be super crystal clear, but it may be beneficial for this individual. And we have to decide if that's what we're going to pursue. 
Um, and we may have evidence uh, ourselves that it may work in individuals, but there's a degree to that. I've seen uh, there's specific dietitians and I've seen several on social media who are taking that to the extreme to then say, well, I saw this work for some of my clients, so I'm recommending it to all of them. And it's and they're using oh, no. the, the out of. Of that, like uh, science is slow. Um, and so I have, I think we have to be careful with, there's a balance of like using our clinical judgment and understanding that we're working with the individual, but not using the complete out of like, well, science is slow. I've done my own research on an end of two people and I think it works. So therefore I'm going to just tell everyone to do it. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up the point that people say science is slow. Um, I know there's a ton of people out there who are like, um, uh, this doesn't necessarily show in the evidence yet, but I am hundred percent sure that this is going to work because of my like 50 or hundred clients yeah. who put this on and they've all been super successful. So is there kind of a litmus test or a way to balance that? But when you're telling people, or is that kind of just a subjective thing as of right now? I, I mean, I think it's largely subjective and again, that's, that comes down to an individual's like ethical stance. Like, do you feel ethical put it like prescribing whatever or a diet or regimen or something to a patient when you only have that level of data? Are you prepared for if something comes back, the ramifications of that? Um, that again is a decision that you're going to have to make at the individual level. Um, in my opinion, I guess. Definitely. Jumping off that and uh, the point of ramifications, we know that there are definitely ramifications of poor diet. Um, evidence speaking, we know that like atherosclerosis and all these things, blah, blah, blah. But there seems to be some subset of people or just some people who think that either nutrition doesn't matter for whatever reason, they can just eat whatever they want. Or the people that think that I exercise, I run a lot, I lift a lot, I can eat whatever I want. Um, so kind of as a very broad question, how does nutrition impact health? And is there like a direct large impact? Nutrition, uh, again, it's it's messy because humans are messy. Um, again, I believe largely that because nutrition is compounded over time and there are exposures that we get that we put ourselves in every single day that our diet does matter. And we do need to pay attention to the research as it comes out. But I think largely, again, we don't need to lose sight of the big picture and getting nitpicky and the very like tiny minutia. Um, I think overall looking at caloric and macronutrient distribution, um, across the day is like probably a good place to start for most people. Maybe some people want to pay more attention to micronutrient levels too, but largely in the U S, um, if we're eating relatively diverse diets, we hit all of our micronutrient levels. No problem. You don't have to be supplementing with like mega dose vitamins and minerals. We do a decently good job. We also have fortification, um, that exists in our food system. I always tell people like, if you go eat a bowl of Cheerios, you've gotten like ton of your micronutrients for the day, especially your minerals because it's been fortified. Um, so with that aspect, you don't really have to get super nitpicky about your vitamins and minerals as long as you're playing, paying attention to balancing your overall diet. Um, and then you can just go back to like for a simple, for a like simplistic way of looking at it. Like, can you just balance your plate? Can you balance every meal? Can you ensure that you're including a carbohydrate, a protein and a fat at every meal? Um, and in that way, nutrition, it's uh, to get back with the how nutrition impacts health. We have evidence from epidemiological and observational studies that prove that 
find associations between dietary patterns and overall health. That has been like the large contention of debates and arguments from uh, both within researchers and within just the public, um, because those have been kind of flip-flopped over time, specifically when we're thinking about the saturated fat, specifically when we think about carbohydrate intake. Um, and I think, again, because humans are messy, it's hard to tease out individual nutrients. And it's also really hard to tease out overall dietary patterns. But we do know that eating a diverse diet is important for overall health, also your gastrointestinal health. Um, getting adequate protein is important, making sure you're staying hydrated, um, eating enough fiber. Like there's some general concepts and I don't think nutrition needs to be super nitpicky for most individuals outside of if they have an, a specific condition in which they would need MNT. So do you feel like, so I feel like with one of the things that, you know, I guess not really a frustration, but something I've observed is, you know, when we think about other interventions, whether it's, you know, an exercise intervention, uh, pharmacologic intervention, something like that, there's, you know, a dose and a response that we're looking for. Um, and usually it's relatively specific. You know, if you're, you know, you're taking X, you know, milligrams of some medication, it's not just, you know, take some of these pills and then for some amount of time. And then, you know, so I think like, you know, it would be seemingly beneficial to the nutrition world if we could give more specific interventions, like, you know, include X grams of psyllium husk fiber into your diet. But like you said, humans are messy, diet is messy. And, but that opens the door for like these kind of, uh, I guess, whimsical ideas of, you know, healthy diets that are not really based on any evidence. It's just like, you know, they're having a green shake in the morning. So mm -hmm. it's healthy, you know? So, yeah. But, you know, do you do you kind of see that the same way or do you kind of think more so we're looking for just basic, you know, overall underlying principles to guide people? I'd love to have more research on individual components and how they impact health. But again, I think that's super messy and I think we need more funding to do it. And nutrition is kind of a largely underfunded area unless you're studying obesity. Um, if you're not studying obesity, they're not going to fund you to do like a lot of your research because that's not a hot topic. Maybe cancer. Maybe they'll fund you to study cancer. But um, I do think those are super important, I, but I think in order to get true representations, we need very tightly controlled studies in which we're able to give someone or prescribe a specific diet or specific nutrient composition and then make sure that that's all they eat, control for their activity, um, but also assess that they're do you also throw a wrench into things like what's their digestion like? Are they able to actually absorb everything that they're eating? Um, if they have any underlying gastrointestinal conditions, they might not be absorbing what you're feeding them too. So that adds another layer of messy. Um, but I think we do need those tightly controlled research studies, but I think there's just a lot of funding that needs to be um, given and provided for that. Agreed. Um, so since we have a nutritional expert on us with us today, um, and that we haven't really discussed any topics in nutrition, um, I think it's time we do a little bit of myth busting. And as we've talked about, there's a lot of very silly ideas and some that might not sound so silly to some people just because they've been hearing it for so many years that it's just become a fact, although it's obviously not true. So, um, we're going to ask you a couple of questions just like, myth or fact, and then maybe if you want to talk about them a little bit. So I guess the first one um, that we've addressed a little bit through our social media was the idea that high protein is bad for you. So like when I was a kid, I went to my doctor and he would say, don't eat so much protein because it'll be bad for your kidneys. Is <laughs> yeah. there any truth to that? It is a myth with a hint of nuance. So 
for a healthy individual, high protein diets are no issues. So the thought of the hypothesis that was generated decades ago in which we thought protein could potentially harm the kidneys is um, amino acids, which are the, co uh, the components that make up proteins, are nitrogen containing. And we have to have a mechanism to excrete the nitrogen within our body um, because it can build up and it is present largely as ammonia ions. We have to have a mechanism to get rid of that. We convert that ammonia ion to urea and we can excrete it with water through our urine. Not a big problem. But the way in which we excrete it, again, is through our urine, therefore the kidneys. And so it was thought that a higher protein diet, you'd have to do more of that. You'd be producing more ammonia. You'd have to turn it to urea and excrete it. Um, and that was thought to be taxing on the kidneys. Um, this is somewhat true uh, for individuals that have kidney conditions. So we're specifically thinking of chronic kidney disease, specifically levels above. There's several levels, but in like the level three and four is where we start to really con be concerned about protein intake because they're uh, glomerular filtration rate starts to drop um, and they have issues fil filtering out those um, uh, filtering out ammonia and excreting urea. Um, so in that instance, we need to pay attention to it, but that, that research ended up, ended up not being very translatable to a healthy population at a whole, as a whole. Um, those of us healthy individuals, we are perfectly capable of excreting, um, the nitrogen in our urine from high protein diets. So that is largely a false for, um, healthy individuals. And just real quick for those of you at home who are, or wherever you're listening to this, if you think you might have some level of kidney damage, CKD4, which uh, Dr. Hoffman was addressing, is essentially needing dialysis. Yeah. So more than likely you are not at that point, otherwise you would know it. Yeah, for sure. And then there was also like a thought that protein was uh, high protein diets are bad for your bones, too, um, because there was like a calcium excretion hypothesis and that when individuals ate higher protein diets, they excreted higher levels of calcium in their urine. But that proved to also be in inaccurate because individuals, when um, when we have higher protein diets, we might be excreting more calcium, but we also have a greater rate of absorption. So the net loss of calcium is, is largely insignificant. Um, not to mention that protein is a large component of our bone structure and having adequate amounts is also important for that as well. So, yeah, I mean, like that, and that's one of the things that even now is perpetuated so, so many times, even sometimes by doctors still. Thankfully, it seems to be dying, but slowly. Uh, what about saturated fat? So, you know, we have some keto friends uh, who think saturated fat is really, this is a hot topic. It's really good for you, saturated fat. What are your thoughts? It's, uh, there's nuance with this one too. So largely our thoughts on saturated fat being bad for us come from, uh, observational and epidemiological studies over time um, that were association based, but they don't control for other aspects of the diet too. So while they may see an increased risk for cardiovascular disease with high saturated fat intakes, it, they weren't taking into effect other lifestyle factors or dietary factors as well. However, we do know that um, there is are certain genetic predispositions that may make an individual um, more susceptible for not metabolizing saturated fat quite as well, um, promoting an increase in LDL cholesterol um, as well and triglycerides. And so there is some nuance there too. Largely, um, my stat and my belief on saturated fat is while the research has gone back and forth, um, I do believe there is a balance that we don't need to just like hammer saturated fat and eat butter all day, every day, um, because the, the keto 
realm ran away with the, well, saturated fat is not bad, not bad for you because some of those studies came out uh, maybe a decade ago that were then like, well, saturated fat, it's not as bad as we thought for cardiovascular health. We didn't see an association. Um, so you have these conflicting studies and now polarized groups. Um, I, I'm on neither side. I'm kind of in the gray, which is where you'll find me on most of them, that I think we need to pay attention and that we're not pounding butter and eating just straight uh, high saturated fat diets. Wait, wait you um, mean if I, if I put butter in my coffee, I'm not going to live forever? Uh, I don't even know why. <laughs> it can't even taste good. It has to have like a weird mouthfeel too. No. I just no, I've never done it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's gross. So, no, no, so the next one, the next one that is kind of, it's kind of, we've been kind of combating this one, but it's the idea that carbohydrates make you fat. So I think in the fitness space, I, th I think most people understand that carbohydrates don't make you fat and that they're like good for you in a sense where they fuel performance and whatnot. But then whenever you talk to like other people that might not know as much or just like layperson, the first thing they think about when they're trying to lose weight or just like get healthier is I need to cut out all of my carbohydrates. Yeah. So it's a myth or a fact that carbs make you fat. I mean, again, nuance, but uh, <laughs> it's carbohydrates are no more um, weight gain inducing than any other macronutrient. Um, so with that aspect into consideration, it's a myth. You can technically overeat any macronutrient and therefore that will get stored as triglycerides and in your adipose tissue. So you can overeat anything and it'll get converted to fat and you store it. Um where the carbohydrate comes in, I think, and I think what still gets perpetuated besides the fact that Atkins was like super popular. And so we have parents and grandparents that did it and they still think it's like the best because they did it and they lost weight. But we, for, we forget that when you restrict carbohydrates, you're typically overall restricting your energy intake, which therefore is going to cause you to most often lose weight. With carbohydrates as well, when we store glycogen, we also store water along with it. Um, and so when you cut carbohydrates, you're also losing some of that water weight, which is where that term where you, you know, see people say, claim that they're losing water weight comes from as well. And so that can be incredibly gratifying to cut carbs from your diet. And then a few days later, you've dropped five pounds. So um, largely not, not accurate, but you can overeat anything um, and anything can get stored as excess adipose tissue or fat. <laughs> All right, just a quick add on to that one, just because it's a little bit, um, a little bit more tricky is that some people thinking that they're cutting carbs, but then adding artificial sweeteners and then other people saying artificial sweeteners are bad for you. They'll still make you get fat. What about that? Yeah, my least favorite one. I'm not really a big fan. I think the evidence on artificial sweeteners, um, and like weight gain is very, a lot of the evidence with that is like within rodent models. Um, it's, not really translated well to humans. The most it's translated is in that when you consume artificial sweeteners, you potentially may have a larger craving um, for like carbohydrates because you're restricting carbohydrates from your diet and therefore your body's telling you, you need carbohydrates. Um, so I'm not in the belief that artificial sweeteners cause weight gain or are bad for you. Um, a lot of when we look at what um, amount is deemed to be like safe um, or generally recognized as safe um, by like the FDA, you would have to be like pounding packets of sweeteners to, to get to that amount. Um, so I'm largely in the camp that artificial sweeteners, if you like them, include them. I, I, you know, do my fair share of Splenda sometimes in coffee and Stevia and, you know, yeah.
Yeah, I think the studies they looked at, like the the toxic amount is amounts to like some like if they, you broke it down to like twelve ounce diet sodas a day, it would have to be like something like thirty or forty diet sodas yeah. a day or more. Which I don't even. Well, know you don't put a hundred splendors in your coffee in the morning. <laughs> I, well, I, yeah, that's where I start. Yeah, and then I you know, I go from there. <laughs> what about what about organic food? So that's been a big one for the past. I don't know, decade or so is that you, know, you go to Whole Foods, you go to Trader Joe's or whatever and big organics on the label and it just happens to be $5 more than the non-organic version. Yeah. Organic food is something that kind of gets me a little bit meh. Uh, because largely this is where, again, the nutrition comes into like accessibility, like how accessible are new organic foods? We're telling people that they're, you know, healthier and that they need to eat it and that they're, you know, there's people touting that you're going to die if you eat conventional foods because of the pesticides. Um, to bust their myth, pesticides are still used and found on organic foods. Um, you can also find the pesticides used in conventional foods on organic food products just due to like uh, like runoff and like the way it, the wind blows and all that kind of stuff. So organic food does not mean pesticide free and pesticides are not necessarily bad just because they're a chemical that's put on to prevent pests from, you know, attacking or destroying your, your crops doesn't necessarily mean that the level that you're getting is toxic within the body. Um, again, you can put anything in a cell culture dish or an animal model at a high enough dose and it'll it's going to cause issues. Like you can kill an individual with by drinking too much water. Anything can be toxic. Um, so I largely don't think uh, I'm on the train of if your choice to eat organic food, if you're feeling like you have to eat organic food so much to the and you can't afford it to the the cost that it's causing you to not eat any fruits and vegetables at all. That's, that's where I have the issue. Much better off eating conventional foods. I don't eat organic foods. The rare time I buy organic uh, fruit is when the strawberries might look redder during the summer and they're on sale. You know, I think one of the, one takeaway from that is I think the whole world needs a lesson on the dose response curve. Yep, for uh, sure. And oh, yeah. then, you know, I think it's a personal pet peeve of mine after doing some, you know, coursework in community nutrition, you realize that socioeconomic status is a huge barrier to, to health for a lot of people. And it just so happens that organic food or food that's touted as healthier is so much more expensive and, and not necessarily healthier, but, you know, it caters to people who can financially support a diet that has organic food and has these expensive things that, you know, so basically we're telling people who can't afford that, well, you're just going to have to be less healthy than so-and-so. Mm -hmm. And then and what's that really doing for their stress levels, which we know yeah. are bad for, bad for your health. Like you're telling yeah. them that they're going to be, that they can't do anything about their health. So what is that going to do? Like yeah. they might make more, uh, less health promoting behaviors. They might take more health risks because yeah. they're like, well, screw it. I'm already, I can't eat organic food. Mm -hmm. And that, sure. and then, that narrative oh, that eating healthier is more expensive than eating whatever or eating unhealthy, which is that kind of perpetuates that idea. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll table that discussion of like socioeconomic stuff because we, we'll touch on that a little later because it's very important to discuss. But we got another myth on the table here. And that's similar to kind of the organic foods is that um, you see these graphics on Instagram and we have like um, just food on one side. Then you have like packages with food 
in it on the other side. And you have people saying that whole foods are better for you than packaged foods. What about that? A nuance, but I largely think it's confusing for people. So there was the, and I'm sure you've heard this, like you should only shop the perimeter of the grocery store. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 like, okay, you find your fresh foods usually on the perimeter and like your meats and stuff like that. But you're if you're doing that, you're completely neglecting perfectly healthy foods that exist in the aisles in between. Um, people get so caught up in I have to eat fresh fruit fresh fruits and vegetables. When in reality, if you go over to the freezer section, a lot of those fruits and vegetables have been peaked at their ripe, like their peak ripeness, flash frozen. And so their nutrient content per se might be actually more superior than those that are fresh that get picked way before they're ripe, shipped across the country or across the world, and then ripen off the shelf um, or off the vine or wherever they're coming from. Um, so in that instance, like frozen fruit foods might be better. Also, are you, you know, are you going to buy uh, fruits and vegetables and let them spoil? Or are you going to more likely to eat frozen fruits and vegetables that you can keep in your freezer and pull out when you need them? Canned fruits and vegetables are also like perfectly fine. You find your grains in the middle of the aisles. Um, and all of those things that we would consider in the middle aisles to be quote unquote packaged, um, like peanut butter and almond butter, like perfectly healthy fat sources packaged. Um, and then the term processed food, which people get caught up on, like all of our food in the grocery store has been processed to some extent. Like, let's just agree on that. Even the mm -hmm. fresh stuff, it's been yep. processed to an extent. <laughs> And Otherwise, we're going to find dirt and bugs and everything in there. Yeah. And uh, just real quick for anyone listening to this, if you have other myths that you've heard that we didn't address here, then please be sure to like find us on social media or something. And then either we'll have Dr. Hoffman on again or we'll, we'll address them at some point. But just shoot us your myths and we'll talk about them. <laughs> and, you know, with the, with the whole foods versus packaged foods, do you find that, you know, you're correct? You have to correct people all the time. And, you know, maybe in if you take a look at the whole diet, a person who eats mostly whole foods is going to likely have better outcomes than a person who eats mostly packaged foods, but it's likely for the confounding variables, like people who usually have whole food diets, maybe also exercise, they maybe also are paying attention to what constitutes the, you know, the macronutrient breakdown of their diet, the yep. calories they eat. And it's maybe just, they have more access to healthcare. Yep. You anything know. like that, you know, and then yeah. also, you know, just the idea of it, it genuinely is for most people easier to overeat packaged foods because they can be hyper palatable and uh, mostly calorically dense without being overly satiating. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, you talked a little bit about healthy foods, quote unquote. So we just wanted to ask you because there's a lot of like. Um, different definitions of what a healthy food might be. So what actually is a quote unquote healthy food? What does that mean? Uh, that's a, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> Take your best at this and however much time we have. <laughs> uh, I don't even know how to begin with that because it's like healthy in what sense? It's going to look different for every individual. Um, are you, did you just come from a workout and you have only eaten like 500 calories for your day and it's like 2 p.m.? Well, the healthiest food for it, for you in that instance is going to be something that's high protein, high calorie. You can get the high carb often and you can get the calories in. Um, are you an individual that's looking to maybe lose a little bit of weight? Are you at the end of the day and you've you felt like you've satisfied a lot of your um, you've eaten, you know, most mostly uh, carbohydrate and protein foods, and you don't feel like you've included any fibrous veggies or anything like that in your day, well, the healthiest option for you at that point is probably something that's going to be more fruit and veg based, uh, maybe more fibrous uh, salad or something like that. Um, I think healthy is 
needs to be contextualized. We have to think about what situation. Um, and so I don't like to put like foods in a box of like healthy and unhealthy, um, I, because I think what's largely healthy for one individual is going to depend on the context and the situation. And there's very few foods that we've completely deemed like unhealthy, um, because you also have to consider your mental health as well. Is your do you really want a chocolate bar right now? Because that just would you know mean that's what your body's asking for, and that's what you feel like you need in that moment. If that's going to support your mental health, like go for it. Um, I think the only food that we've all agreed upon is quote unquote bad for our health are foods you're allergic to and um, trans fats. Like we can pretty much all agree that trans fats are not not great for us, but we've largely eliminated those through in the food system. So it's not a super big concern. Do you feel like by putting those labels on food, you know, so often like, you know, that's been done is, you know, healthy versus unhealthy and, you know, kind of how we explain it to people. Do you think that contributes to some like a harmful narrative for people if they can, if they develop, you know, a, a guilt or reward uh, kind of relationship with food? Do you think those labels are harmful? Yep. I, I completely agree that those labels are harmful and that, you always want what you sit, tell yourself you can't have. Um, so an example is like individuals that you might have to put on a low potassium diet in a medical setting. Sometimes they just want some fruits and vegetables and sometimes they just want a banana and that they would do anything for a banana. Like you always want what you can't have. And so when you put food into like boxes, um, you're causing, you're increasing the risk of having like binge like behaviors and feeling out of control around food. Um, and we also can't neglect that food is um, a way we connect with others. And if you're putting food into those boxes, are you then focused more on the nutrient content of food when you're at Thanksgiving with your family with masks this year, apparently, um, sure. or sure. not apparently, but you should yeah. be wearing masks this year if you're with your family. Um, are you more concerned about the nutrient content on that table that you're not connecting with individuals that you've not seen for six months? Like, um, there's a lot more that needs to go into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For sure. And we, we talked about food deserts a little bit earlier. We're going to table that discussion that we were just having. Cause there's just uh, so much to cover. It's always interesting to talk about nutrition because there's just like we way too much to, to cover. A, we honestly need to and do not like enough a, time. Part, a part two to this podcast because there's just so much to talk about. And I'm sorry <laughs> if I'm like being such a nerd right now. I love nutrition science is like my favorite thing to talk about. So I'm, I know I'm being a giant nerd right now. So I apologize. We appreciate the nerd nerdness. <laughs> So just, just to be upfront about this, do you have more time than an hour? Is it okay if we run over? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, we can run over. Okay. So then, then we don't have to table that discussion. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, yeah. You were mentioning how people just like, um, when you go to like Thanksgiving and whatnot, is it worth it to like sacrifice that time? And it's always funny seeing people that go to like these special events, like birthday parties and whatnot for either the grandparents, like anyone, a close friend, and they bring a food scale and they're like, I can't eat that because yeah. it doesn't fit in my macros. <laughs> it's always funny to me to see them like, bro, there's like, enjoy life. Like life is a thing. Everything doesn't have to revolve around your macros and your scales. So yeah, bring your Tupperware to the movie theater. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Only if you have Sour Patch Kids in it. There you go. That's fair. That's fair. Fair use of the Tupperware at the movie theater. And it's because you can't bring a five gallon bag, like the five gallon bag of Sour Patch Kids. Oh, if you have a big enough coat, you can. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> so wait, did did we ask the food desert question yet, Raghav? We didn't. We didn't. We tabled okay. that for this discussion, but we can go ahead with that now. Yeah. Go so basically, um, with you know a big discussion in the nutrition world and the health world in general, the idea of food deserts. So people who live in areas, you know, if you're listening, you're not sure what that means. A food desert is somewhere where someone doesn't have adequate access to a grocery store. So maybe the closest thing they have is a convenience store or a 7-Eleven, or they have to take, you know, two buses or a train somewhere very far away to get their groceries. So um, is there something that health professionals can do to one, make themselves more aware of their population of patients or clients who may be facing that situation or as a, in a global sense, is there more we can do to combat food deserts like as a whole? Um, I think from an individual standpoint, it, it comes down to listening and, and connecting with your clients and hearing what they need. Like not just telling them like, this is the diet that you need to eat. Asking like, what, what do you have access to? What's in your neighborhood? Then working with them of like, okay, well we can design a quote unquote healthy diet for you that you can, you can eat from a convenience store and still meet your requirements. And we can design a diet for you that, that, or eating pattern that's going to, that's going to meet that. Um, so I think it's largely at the, when you're working with the one-on-one with patient, it's largely going to come down to listening and interacting with them and asking the right questions, not just assuming that they have access to things. Um, because you could even live in like a big city and just assume that, okay, everyone has like a grocery store that's, you know, within a mile, mile from them, that's super close, but that's not the case. The, your patients that you may be serving might not be living in that same area. Um, and it's naive of you to assume that everyone is going to have the same access to transportation and the, the stores that are around you. Um, from a global perspective, it's something that's being studied extensively um, is the impact of foods at food deserts on overall health and just how prevalent food deserts are even in like urban areas. Um, and it's something that I would hope that the policy side of the nutrition space is, is working towards addressing um, and helping find like governmental funding to being able to increase um, access to fruits and vegetables, whether even if that's like helping convenience stores get um, more produce, you know, have be able to store stuff like that um, if your physical space is limited. Yeah. One of the things that boggles my mind and I've seen it in person is that when there's a patient who comes in who obviously needs to improve their lifestyle behaviors, otherwise they're like at risk for a lot of other things. And then a physician is telling them you need to improve your diet as such a blanket advice. And then everything that we've talked about already with like healthy foods being labeled and people making, uh, like making people think that they aren't being healthy by eating these certain foods. Um, it's just crazy to me that physicians don't take that into account. But then again, I also somewhat forgive them because there's just so much on a physician's yeah. plate, which is why I think that we need to be utilizing more registered dietitians because it's such like a simple solution. Like professional already exists for this. Just to use it. Yeah. yeah. And then but one of the, sorry, sorry, go ahead, Rog. I don't mean to cut I was, I was just going to ask, like, from a convenience store, what does it look like to be healthy? Obviously, we know that being healthy is relative, but what does that look like in terms of like food? Like what they could get from a convenience yeah. store? Well, it depends. Again, it's going to depend on the convenience store um, specifically. But typically you can find, you know, certain like canned food products. You can find some rices. You can find there are... Uh, protein drinks or sometimes fresh fruit. Um, it's not ideal, but you can definitely, you could 
fit your macros. If you, if you were tracking that, if you want to talk about like a macronutrient distribution, you could hit your macros, um, and still, you know, be eating from a convenience store. But again, we have to consider the mental, mental ramifications of that. Are you telling someone to like do gymnastics to try to figure out exactly how they're going to fit everything from a convenience store? Um, I think accessibility is just something that we need to really work towards increasing when it comes to food. Yep. And um, one of the, what I was about to mention is just, you know, the fact of utilizing RDs in the outpatient setting. One of the big barriers to that, if we're talking about patients who, you know, we're talking about the same patients who might need to take a bus to get to the doctor's office, you know, it may be hard for them to get to a doctor's appointment. And then if they have a secondary appointment at a different date, they need to get to with a registered dietitian, they may be less likely to to show up just because of the barriers that are in the way. And, you know, if they don't take their medications, they may not live, but that the bit, then like the next step to actually, you know, going around, you know, getting to the root of the problem, they may not see that as like a necessary thing. They may see it as, well, I need to get my medications, but, uh, I don't think it's worth that trip to go and talk about my diet. Yeah. So I think there's definitely some other barriers in the way if we're talking about socioeconomic status mm-hmm. as well. For sure. Definitely. And then I think one of the things that's fantastic about technology though, is that at some point or another, I think everyone either has access to a smartphone or some level of technology. So kind of jumping into the next question, um, everyone might not have access to healthcare or able to like go to a grocery store or whatnot, but it seems that information is becoming more and more readily accessible for good and bad. But um, kind of what are the best resources for someone who's trying to get healthier? What resources should they look at? Because obviously they're not going to go look at all these journals and read like 20 pages of nuanced data and whatnot, but where can they look? Yeah, I largely, when we think about like a population widespread as a whole, I usually like to direct people towards like our governmental websites. So the USDA has great information um, on on nutrition and uh, pretty like easily digestible information. Um, The uh, MyPlate guidelines, which are broadly. Um, so we used to have the food guy, the food pyramid, um, that we've phased that out. We use now use my plate, which is, is a visual, um, of a plate, um, and like how you should segment that. So it tends to be like half of it comes from fruit and vegetables, about a quarter from protein, about a quarter from whole grains. It has dairy on the side. Um, so that teaches you to kind of balance your diet rather than like a food pyramid, which was largely confusing for a lot of people. Um, and so there's like those websites, the National Institutes of Health, um, NIH, who does fund a lot of our scientific research also has user-friendly, um, guides on micronutrients, macronutrients, um, even like, uh, supplements and things like that. So, um, another great resource, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. So they have a website, um, it's eatright.org. Um, they have a both professional side for dietitians, but they have a public side. Um, and there's a lot of free information and resources there. And I mentioned those just because those are the most like vetted, um, and like backed by and evaluated by scientists and dietitians and nutritionists in the field. Um, I, I'm always hesitant to tell people to look up things online just because of the sheer amount of misinformation that's out there. Um, and typically the things, first things that pop up are like misinformation sites or um, maybe oversimplification, um, like blogs and things like that. So um, largely focusing on like those governmental websites, the .orgs and the .govs. Um, so USDA, NIH, Eat Right, um, MyPlate, those are probably the top ones. 
I don't know. It's an interesting time to kind of suggest the government. Um, I think there's yeah. a lot of people who kind of mistrust the government um, for many reasons, uh, some more valid than the other. But the, at the end of the day, there are the government kind of has like a bunch of resources and a bunch of people looking at these. So for those of you at home who might want to trust a random influencer on Instagram, um, the government and all these websites actually have a lot of research and a lot of people that are dedicated to the research and the evidence that are making these recommendations. So um, despite the Instagram influencer or article saying that they've done the research and they know more, there's likely more to the government website than what they make you think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that, you know, it seems like people with the most uh, truthful things to say get overwhelmed by the conspiracy theory crowd, uh, specific, I guess, especially speaking with nutrition. I mean, it just it's like you hear these crazy things, you know, fruit makes you fat and the government wants to make you fat because they have this and this and this. So you know, don't trust, you know. USDA because they want you fat, like just like things that that are just absurd, but people just get on board with it. It's so like so we can weird. talk about wanting to improve our food system and discussing yeah. the errors and like flaws that are within it, and as yeah. within every organization, without making people think that the world is out to get them and to make everyone yeah. fat and to like yeah. make everyone addicted to sugar. You know, sugar yeah, it's, addiction. It's, it's, same, so. Yeah, same thing as like you know, doctors are just you know, it's all big pharma. They just want to yeah. prescribe you medication. It's like it's like come on, guys. Like let's, let's conspiracy theories are easier for people to believe because they don't have to have any evidence behind them. You can just dream them up and then there's always a bad guy and it's always fun to have a bad guy. Exactly. One of the things that goes along with conspiracy theories, though, is that people always love pointing out that this study was funded by X group. So that's why it's like this. So um, is there any like rebuttal to that or something? Or do you actually take that into consideration when you're doing studies like and if, reading them? If a study was funded by a specific group? Like Big Pharma, for example. Let's, let's say Coca-Cola was the <laughs> yeah, exactly. founder of a study that showed that drinking soda is not contributory towards obesity. So I always say that you should look at the funding sources and you should pay attention to them. Um, and in that instance, I would read with the, like a dose of skepticism, but I read all of my scientific research with a heavy dose of skepticism um, and understand that one study doesn't prove anything. It's just adding to the body of scientific evidence. Coca-Cola does fund, I think, I mean, I'm saying this and I'm not 100% sure, but organizations like Coca-Cola do fund lots of research that isn't even like necessarily in their like specific interest. Um, a lot of these organizations fund research um, that are just for the food system as a whole. Um, so while I think you should pay attention to like where things are coming from and funded from, like if a specific supplement um, like is being studied and it's only funded by this small supplement company, yeah, you should read it with skepticism. But um, understand that no one study proves anything, like everything. Yeah, I think, you know, reverting to the, the adage that, you know, like you said, you take everything with a dose of skepticism and then you compare it to the body of evidence that may already be there if there is one, you know, and if if this study that's funded by maybe a suspicious source conveniently just goes against every, you know, other study that was in a similar like, you know, area and it's completely new findings, then maybe, you, you know, you take it with even a larger grain of salt. But, you know, like you said, I think that taking everything with a dose of skepticism is probably a good move in any 
areas of life before you accept it as a truth for sure. But again, that's also why we have the peer review process in, in research. We, for those of you that aren't familiar, the way research gets published in journals is you have to submit it and it has to be reviewed by your peers. And so they're randomly selected and you don't know who they are often and you don't get identification of who they are and they critique your study. Um, and they sometimes rip it to shreds, like, and tell you that it's horrible. Um, those same studies still have to go through the same review process. Um, so that is just another layer that helps add to our confidence in that, okay, this was a well-conducted study. Um, this has been conducted ethically and we can take this into consideration as the, within the body of research as a whole. Exactly. Yeah. Go ahead, Judge. Jason, you going to say something? Yeah, just, uh, just to not ramble on for too much longer. But one, of the best, <laughs> one of the best things I've ever heard was, I don't know if either of you guys know who Greg uh, Nuckles is or Knuckles. I don't know yeah. how to pronounce yep. his last name, but he said, he's like, uh, obviously for those listening, he's one of the biggest, I guess, um, third party. Like he reads a lot of research and then breaks it down in, in a way that's maybe more digestible for people who don't like to read research papers. Uh, but he says he starts reading a study with the methods section. So, and like, after I heard that, I was like, wow, that's such a great, like, before you even read the title, before you look at who funded it, look at the methodology of how they're studying their topic. And then if the methods look terrible, then you can just disregard it. Or if they look reasonable, then you can go on and he'll go on and read the rest of the paper. So I think that was one of the, the best, most practical, practical pieces of advice I've ever heard for evaluating research. Yeah. However, that's probably going to be for the people who are reading research. And yeah. we know that yeah. the vast majority <laughs> of people are not going to be. So as Dr. Hoffman was saying, you use those government websites, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the, like the MyPlate and the, what was the other website? USDA um, has, um, has fairly good resources too. So you could just yeah. type in like nutrition USDA and your Google shirts and you know, their websites would come up that were appropriate for that. Cause the USDA is massive, but, um, exactly. Yeah. And then also you could, if you have social media, try to find people who are more evidence-based like Dr. Hoffman, who are actually talking about things from an evidence-based perspective. And in general, if anyone says they have the one solution and you have to eat this way, then just unfollow them real quick right because away. they're leading you down. <laughs> exactly. But, um, like we talked about, we could probably talk about nutrition forever. Um, I think it could easily be three, four five hours on to forever, but we don't want to hold you for that long. Um, we all have things to do. So to end every episode, we like to ask, um, our guests like kind of the highest yield topics that they would give in terms of recommendations, because although we're not medical advice, we want to give some level of like practical advice. So let's say, for example, you are at a coffee shop, you're waiting for your Starbucks, it's two minutes and someone runs up to you and say, Hey, Dr. Hoffman, um, you give really good advice. What do I do to get healthier? What do you say? Uh, in terms of diet, I say, don't, don't sweat the small stuff. Um, focused on building a balanced plate. We have our three main macronutrients, carbohydrate, protein, and fat. Try to include a form of those in at, with each meal. Um, and you know, don't, don't stress too much about it. Um, make sure food is enhancing your life and adding to it and not taking away from it. Oh, all right. That was actually that within two our, minutes. That might be our best <laughs> minute answer of all time, Robert. What do you think? I agree. It actually fits within two minutes. So I think the rest <laughs> of them are disqualified. We go on and on and on, but we've talked about the nuance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then also for anyone listening to this, just just keep in mind that whenever Dr. Hoffman answered something, she always said like, this is nuance. There's a gray area. <laughs> so whenever it comes to nutrition or anything, there's always going to be gray area. So I can't stress enough that if anyone tells you that this is the one way to go, then just run. Please. Yeah, for, for real. Don't even if, if I do it, run, if, if you see even me do it, <laughs> run. Uh, so, um, 
yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a good, maybe stopping point for this, this particular part one of hopefully our many uh, episodes with Dr. Hoffman, but where can, where can people find you on social media, YouTube, any, anywhere you want to plug for your own uh, resources? Um, I'm mainly just on social media. So it's at Jesse Hoffman underscore PhD. Um, and that's where I'm most active. I do, um, I try to post a fair amount. This semester has been, I'm starting as a, I'm a new professor at a, in a nutrition program and it's been, uh, just a busy semester. It's always hard getting your feet wet and and jumping into things, teaching four classes. Um, but I plan to post more next semester when things start to, uh, calm down. Um, but I do every Wednesday have a Wednesday Q and a where I just, put a question box and I answer any and all questions that come into the box as long as they don't um, step over bounds and are asking for specific nutrition advice. Um, So you can feel free to find me on there and ask me all the questions you want. Yeah. And then for anyone listening to this, we'll have all of our social medias and any links um, on our website, as well as through our social media on Instagram and Twitter and whatnot. So you can be sure to find her there. Well, uh, thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. Um, This was a fantastic episode and I think there's a lot of value here for our listeners. So once again, we greatly appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much. I'll look forward to coming back on and busting some more myths. All right. (laughs) All right. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Hey everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at Prevent Podcast. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Thank you all for listening and we will see you next time.